You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Well, welcome, Wiretappers, back here in the studio of Gangland Wire. Uh, have a very interesting show for you. I have a friend of mine from back in the day, uh, Dave True. Welcome, Dave. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, you know, uh, Dave was a. Uh, with the ATF and, you know, the intelligence unit guys worked with the ATF and the FBI and DEA real closely many, many times. Uh, usually whenever they needed help watching somebody or following somebody around, well, they'd, they'd call us in. And, and, but they have good informants, and sometimes we'd have some kind of an informant that would uh, would help them out. So we, we, we worked really closely together. Uh, Dave, was how long were you in Kansas City? I came here in 76, and I retired in 97. Oh, wow. And I still live here. Yeah, so, and I went to the intelligence unit in 76 and, and left there in 84 and then came back in 90 and was there for a couple of years as a sergeant. So our careers are really kind of paralleled each other. Uh, Dave has written this book, Gangsters, Outlaws, and Mobsters, and it's a little bit like Bill Owsley's book. I know a lot of you guys know Owsley's been on the show a couple, three times, and he had mobsters in, his, in our midst. And it was just a recap of his career with the FBI. Well, this is a recap of... David's career with the ATF, and, and it really gets outside of Kansas City and goes to St. Louis because he's got a lot of, he's got a history in St. Louis, shall we say. And uh, so what I want to do is, David, tell us a little bit about uh, several of the different stories that a reader will be able to find in this book. And oh, by the way, I'll have a link to the Amazon uh, page where you can get this book on my uh, show notes. Yeah, my purpose of this book was to stretch the entire state of Missouri beyond the larger cities. And it's a 20th century of the gangsters, outlaws, and mobsters, a 100-year career of gangsters and their crimes. And it covers uh, a lot of characters, Bonnie and Clyde, Pretty Boy Floyd, uh, Killer Burke out of St. Louis, the Egan's Rats, and... uh, uh, it just stretches across. I cover Northwest Missouri, Southwest Missouri, Kansas City, St. Louis. I start out with the Missouri prison inmates, and they're from all over the state. Did time in the big house, and I, I drew some interesting stories from that, from the 1900s to 1999, a hundred year stretch of uh, history. Now, Dave, you mentioned a name, uh, Killer Burke. I looked that guy up once, and I was going to do a podcast on him. I researched him, and he's an interesting guy. Tell, tell the guys what you talk, uh, what you learned about Fred Killer Burke. Well, he's very interesting, and uh, he was born over here in outside in Kansas, outside Kansas City, and moved over to St. Louis and joined the Egan's Rats, one of the most uh, prolific gangs in St. Louis in the early 1900s, and he became a hitman for hire. And he's, I consider him the most notorious outlaw in Missouri's history, mm-hmm. actually. He's killed so many. He's responsible for the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. He did that for Capone with his buddies from the Egan's Rats and the Cuckoos. And he went up to New York and he machine gunned Frankie Yale on behalf of Capone. And he literally introduced the machine gun to New York. So mm-hmm. He was introduced to New York by a St. Louis guy. So that he's prolific. Uh, he got caught doing the uh, St. Valentine's Day massacre. He found his weapons up in Michigan, and forensically 
put him back at the crime scene of that uh, tragic murder. Yeah, you know, uh, when I was reading up on him, they even help you, you can help me with this story. He and, and those other guys from St. Louis, from Egan's Rats, they were all what we call Peckerwoods. And uh, they were somehow hooked up with Capone. They were called his American boys. Capone called his American boys. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, non-Italian. And Capone brought them all into his syndicate. And he used them for special assignments, <laughs> as I related here uh, previously. And Killer Burke, he went up to Detroit and worked with the Purple Gang, and he committed a, a murder there with a machine gun, killed three, and uh, explained New York, and then the uh, St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Came back to St. Louis, did several murders here, and he just all over the place for hire. Yeah, he was, uh, you know, kind of, I think it's an interesting story at the end, how he got caught. How, how they got caught, uh, he, he was hiding out somewhere up here in the mid-central part of the state of Missouri, and and really, you know, most people today don't know Fred Killer Burke, but he was he was a prolific hitman. Do you remember the story about when he got caught and they served that search warrant on his house? Yeah, he he left Michigan after he killed a, a, a police officer up there named Scully, and he hid out in uh, Green, Missouri, and in a farm, and uh, stayed there for a while. And then he would go out and do some hits and come back. And the gas station attendant in Green, Missouri, was an avid reader of detective magazines. And he saw his picture in there, and he says, that, that looks like uh, Fred Killer Burke. So he turned him into the police, and sure enough, they arrested him, the uh, police officers out of St. Joseph, Missouri, and uh, sent him back to Michigan, where he served out his prison term and died in prison. They found the machine guns up in a Michigan... Uh, house he owned. Perhaps. He absconded to Missouri, but they found him up in Michigan. Okay. They sent him to Chicago, matched him up forensically with the uh, local expert in in uh, Chicago area, and then they put the arrest warrant out for him, and then they found him in Green, Missouri, at the farm. Right. So actually, it was two two locations where uh, okay, it All was right. uh, cleaned up. I was wrong on that, but those guns, the bullets out of them, were the same bullets that were in those victims at the St. Valentine's massacre. So there's no doubt, no. no doubt that that they linked that gun to him, and they linked the gun to the massacre with ballistically. So there's That's no correct. doubt about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, now, Dave. Um, Let's change subjects here a little bit. The mob in St. Louis, or, and I'm not really saying particularly La Cosa Nostra Italian mob or mafia, but the organized crime scene in St. Louis. You were from St. Louis, weren't you a St. Louis police officer at one time? I was a St. Louis police officer and a detective with bomb and arson uh, before I went with ATF in 71. And I grew up with the mob in St. Louis, ironically. Really? Uh, As a youth, I grew up with some young thugs. Uh, that became uh, mobsters in their older days, and we wound up working on them. And as I was an ATF agent, I went back to St. Louis and convicted all of them uh, and put them all in prison. Right. Now, you know, St. Louis is an interesting place because they have this Lebanese mafia or Middle Eastern mafia or Syrian mafia. What, explain that to the listeners. Yeah, you got the Lebanese and you got the Italians. And... They kind of worked together, and then they worked against each other. And uh, 
For instance, uh, Pauline Leisure, who I grew up with, he became Tony Giordano's driver, and he's an Italian, and, uh, and then his bodyguard. And then he had his uh, guys, his gangsters, his mobsters go out and kill Jimmy Michaels, who's Lebanese, uh, uh, Italian, and to take over the unions and to get rid of him, which that was the first hit. And then that broke out a uh, civil war between the two rivalries. And it went on for several years. There was a lot of bloodshed, bombings, hits. Uh, we worked all of those, investigated them. I was part of that. Uh, Gordon Holdem, an ATF agent in St. Louis, put that all together, a very good case. Uh, he had a great crew. I call him, had he, him the modern day untouchables. <laughs> they, they worked so well on putting that together with the U.S. Attorney's Office. Now, now, that was between two factions, mainly in the Lebanese organized crime organization, I guess, a double word there. But uh, the, the Paul Leisure had one faction. And this uh, Michaels, what was his first name? Uh, yeah, Mike, uh, Michaels, uh, old man Michaels, uh, Jimmy Michaels Sr., he got blown up on Highway 55. <clears throat> and then they, they had a shootout, a shooting at the Edge Tavern in, down in, off of Gravoy in St. Louis where uh, Anthony Leisure shot two of them trying to kill them. But he used a shotgun and it didn't reach them to sufficiently take care of the business that he wanted done. Yeah. And they went out and did a couple bombings for revenge. The unique uh, thing here about this saga, uh, the bombings included revenge, take over the unions, and they got rid of one of their own guys to silence him. Hmm. You know, that's three of the elements of <laughs> undercover world activity. Yeah. Uh, there's no love for any brothers yeah. in this activity for, in, at that level for sure. Yeah. And this was a lot about control of a big union there, if yes, I remember right. several unions, yeah. And that's what it was all about. They wanted to control the unions. Uh, I was a teamster as a youngster before I became an investigator. And uh, some interesting characters uh, throughout the state in Kansas City and St. Louis, too. Roy uh -huh. Williams oh, yeah. and that crowd. The Savellas uh, took over the, uh, casino, some of the casinos yeah. in uh, Vegas. And um, that's I have a chapter on that. Oh, do you? Okay, all good. That in thor thoroughly, yeah, well documented. I feel a little prejudiced, but I think I well documented all of this as best I could uh, through the research and my own firsthand knowledge. Yeah, and, and that's great. Uh, a guy that'll do the research and live the stories too. So we, you got you got a, so. a good strong. Uh, uh, grasp of, of what this all means and, and then get the details from the research because we can't remember all those details, people. <laughs> There's well, no way. That's right, at our, at our age. <laughs> really. But so, you know, what, what we talked about earlier and what I remember most was uh, back in the 70s, and I don't know, the U.S. Attorney, Department of Justice, they got onto this thing, and they did these all over the United States. They were the first big sting operations. And uh, in Kansas City, the ATF was the selected agency to to run the sting in Kansas City. And, and 
folks, they, they budgeted a lot of money for this thing to buy stolen property, and they really went all out. And, and Dave was heavily involved with that. Uh, were you actually the case agent for No, it? not was, at all. D.R. Nichols was. No, I, I was in administration sent over here from St. Louis, and I handled getting the uh, undercover cars in the city and bringing some of the agents in. And I went to the first meeting with D.R. with uh, Major Harlow to put this together. And we have a great relationship with the Kansas City Police Department, and it worked out very well. We ran this operation from 77 to 78, a year-long operation, and we recovered well over 130 stolen cars, a couple hundred, 300 uh, rifles, handguns, all stolen property, anything. We had a storefront called Apicaro and Associates, and the operation was called Operation Picarone, and a Picarone right. is sort of a pirate that preys on pirates. So we were the good pirates preying on the bad pirates. Yeah, that's a good one. I didn't really realize that. And then uh, A. Picaro, uh, we brought him in from the East Coast, give that Italian touch. Yeah. And, and we even uh, had the opportunity of one of the undercover agents who I helped break in in St. Louis, Big John Keating, infiltrated the mob. Right, right. That, this is a heck of a story on infiltrating the mob in Kansas City. I, I happened to stumble across a uh, newspaper article about it when we were, after we first talked about doing this uh, show. And and so it's a guy, this, folks, this is, to me, it's, you can't write this kind of stuff. I mean, this real stuff, you cannot write, you can't make this up. There's a local guy named Al Murray, M-U-R-I-E, they called him Big Al, Big Al Murray. He was a uh, sprint car driver. Now, sprint cars and midgets, those were, we had a couple, three racetracks here in Kansas City, and they were all across the state in a more mid-sized one down by Odessa were sprint cars, and I think they had some a couple of them in St. Louis. And, and there was a whole circuit in the Midwest of racing these cars. Well, it, this guy had been a, a booster for quite a while, but when I say a booster, a shoplifter, he had been a good one. He he was the kind of guy he bragged about. He was put the most stolen record albums in one booster coat. Now, a booster coat, he had this specially made. It was a long overcoat, man's overcoat, dress overcoat, and then they sew special pockets on the liners that fit perfectly record albums. So he just go through these record stores back in the 60s and 70s and, and fill up those booster pockets. And, and, of course, he was selling them to Tiger Cartarello, I'm Correct. sure. That's true. Yeah, and there's connections there, too. Tiger, of course, he got murdered eventually. Right. He went to prison, and ATF put him away. And he came back, and he ran that business, and he wasn't paying off the mob for his right. uh, enterprise. <laughs> and he took a hit. He took a hit. Tiger, Tiger, he sold more records than any single record store, I'd say, in the city. I think so. Because <laughs> he would sell them for about 75 cents on the dollar. He was buying them for about 25 cents on the dollar. And one of his bookkeepers was a woman named Kathy Nigro, and her maiden name was Camisano. Her dad was Willie the Rat Camisano. So um, he's got his daughter in there overseeing Tiger's operation, I would say. And so he was kicking up to Willie, who had to kick on up to the Savellas a little bit. And, and he had a heck of an operation going. And this guy, you know, he was one of the main boosters for that. But let's go back to Big Al Murray. Well, I think he's financing his race car activities through all this boosting activity because he, he's um, well known and, and he gets caught. He's trying to steal. 
and and a lot of these professional boosters they don't just shoplift i, I followed around a, a crew of them that were stealing art objects la leak crystal there's another kind of crystal uh, tiffany crystal they were stealing this high-end crystal out of these high-end stores and and the Lalique crystal and silverware and uh, and so paintings and, and we actually caught one of them who's stolen the painting from a museum up in Omaha and was trying to sell it to a doc, but Big Al Murray was caught trying to steal a twelve thousand dollar painting by a pretty well known artist from a gallery here in Kansas City, and he was looking at some major time. That's correct. Major time, and so that they somebody turned him. I don't know who. Do you remember who turned him? At well, all? we he. He came to us, and uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, let us work him. And he 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 uh, introduced John Keating to the people in the trap, the under underground figures, and then he uh, he uh, sought uh, safe, uh, safety and wanted to be covered for this, and so he was moved and put in a right. protection program. Right. And eventually, that didn't last very long. Uh, eventually, I think he lost it with uh, his life. But in the meantime, he he started the introduction with Big John Keating getting into the trap. And the interesting story, John didn't know how to play cards. So <laughs> now, the guys now, had to teach the, him. The, tra- the trap is a social club that yes. the Savellas run over here in, in what we call Little Italy or Columbus Park or the North End. And this is where, you know, the picture of the Sopranos sitting out in front of their place, sunning themselves. Well, you'd go by there on the summer afternoon, and about four or five guys would be standing out front, sunning themselves, smoking cigarettes. They'd all wear polo shirts and sense belt slacks and, and gold jewelry. I mean, this was the mob. This was the mob. In its truest sense. In its truest sense. And so Big Al has introduced John Keating, an ATF agent, in as another thief. And as a card player in there who was willing to lose some money, I would assume. And, and now how did Sal, Sal Manzo, had, had, there's, a, there's a local guy that had a, a joint called a Country and Western Playhouse. So he wasn't a made guy, but he grew up in Kansas City, and he was a mob guy, a fence, uh, would do anything that, to make a buck. And he had to kick because he was part. He was an associate, what we call an associate. Correct. And uh, so, how did he figure into this Big Al and the mm-hmm. trap and everything? Well, through the introductions, John Keating bought a couple loads of uh, cookies off of him, moving in the interstate shipment. Then he bought a load of Timex watches, a couple hundred, I believe, uh, the number was, and that moved interstate. And he he was uh, one of those convicted in this uh, project. He got three years in prison, and but he he kind of facilitated John Keating's uh, movements in there. When John wanted to see what was going on, he would have to go to the bathroom, and it, that's the only way he could get to the back room where Carky Savella was holding court. And he'd get in there and they'd watch him, and then they came back. But he did infiltrate, and he got to learn a little bit of intelligence. Uh, then it broke down when they found out about Sal Manzo um, getting caught. Yeah, and then they, a case. they they broke our operation. Yeah, so yeah, and what they had to do, I, I think, I'm not sure how it went down. There's one story we want to tell. I think I don't remember if it's in your book or not, but I remember it because I knew this guy. You remember the Dusty Ryder story? The young policeman. Yeah, we we had yeah, writer. We, we had this young policeman, real gung ho young guy. You know, he yeah. didn't he didn't end up spending a whole career. He started selling insurance after a while, but he was a gung ho young guy, and, and 
he's working the streets around the storefront. And actually what it was was a, uh, it looked like it was an old garage and it became a used car dealership and garage, I think, after that. But it, it had a place where you could pull cars in, you could pull a whole truckload of stuff in, and and there was a counter up front with an office. And, and there's all these professional thieves coming and going, and Dusty noticed this, and he was writing down tag numbers and said, well, you know, here's this professional booster going in, here's this professional burglar going in, and staying for a little bit and leaving, and, you know, there's something going on here. So I think on his own time, he got he brought his own van down there and sat down the street and started watching. What happened was he turned that information into one of the majors. Oh, okay. And one of the majors said... Uh, you actually uh, made our operation, so we're going to make you part of it uh, because of we, we've had an operation going on. And they confided in him what he had. He was, yeah. he was a good good police officer and did the right thing, and so he was brought into the operation. Yeah, yeah I thought I thought he worked, and then he went in the detective unit when he when they took the operation down. I remember they told us at the unit said, "Okay," because they were really secretive about it. this. Was hugely secretive. They told us, "Okay." Now, there's an operation down here uh, at Truman Road and about Benton. And if you pick up on anything on it, come and talk to us first. Well, no, we can't tell you anything more. Just if you learn anything about this, don't do anything but come and talk to us exactly. first. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was such cooperation between the two agencies, ATF and the Kansas City Police Department. I can't say enough about how that went so smooth for a full year to run that operation, D.R. Nichols did an outstanding yeah. job, and he was a well-respected ATF agent and supervisor, too. Now, now tell them how uh, that you got everybody to look at your camera so you could get a good picture of them. Well, yeah, that's unique. We had a picture of Farrah Fawcett up on the wall, and uh, everybody coming in, they'd be the counter, they'd sell their goods, and we'd do our trade. They'd do our trade. I wasn't in there. And uh, these are stories they all told me late at night <laughs> yeah. uh, over a cool one. And they would look at Farrah Fawcett. And one time, John, Big John says, uh, smile, you're on candid camera. He says, oh, <laughs> is there a camera back there? And he says, oh, yeah, probably, <laughs> jokingly. And sure enough, there was. They were videotaping them. And another thing we did, the counter guys, when they couldn't identify somebody, a male or a female fence thief, uh, they'd pour a shot of whiskey and they'd have shot glasses and they'd toast and they'd pick it up and they'd get their fingerprints off of uh -huh. that and they'd run them and identify them that way. Okay. And one night, a lady came in and she was a prostitute and she got tired of her prostitute boss and she tried to get uh, uh, Bill Peterson to be her new boss. <laughs> and, he, and he said no. And then another one came in and she... she uh, we couldn't identify her. They could, the guys couldn't identify her. And she showed pictures of herself, kind of not a lot of clothes on her. Yeah, and, of uh, and on the back of it, she had her name. <laughs> so they identified her that way. So a lot of unique things went, went uh, down in this uh, interesting storefront really? story. Now, it was easy. Like some of those people like that are kind of like shooting fish in the barrel, those small timers. Oh, to yeah. get those yes. big ones, the professional ones, that was the ticket. That was the key there. Did, did Al Murray go around and maybe talk to people and bring some, kind of steer people, anybody, bird dog people mm -hmm. in, the, 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 more, the real professional thieves? Yeah, it, in a sense. Uh, it, we didn't get as much as we wanted to, but we all know how hard that is yeah. to stay in. 
And uh, but we, I thought we did very well with the time we had and what we did. I think the the counter guys and our scouts that went out to all the taverns and all the places where the hot guys were. Okay. And they came in and they they bring their stolen cars, and their stolen jewelry and their handguns and their rifles. Practically everything was stolen. Yeah. And we traced practically everything back. We tried buying everything that had serial numbers or identifying numbers mm-hmm. on the product. Right. And then. John Keating, as it got more comfortable, they'd barter a little bit, but we always gave away a little bit for the guns because we wanted to get them off the street. Yeah. So very, very smooth operation, very successful. And, and there's a whole other kind of problem that, that he touched on, that David touched on, and that's making sure you get the person identified that sold you the property and then finding out where it was stolen from. There's, it's like, it's it's difficult to do all that. Yeah, and they... Uh, they they trace seventy percent of the purchase items back to the owners. Now that's to me that's fascinating. Yeah, that is fascinating statistics. Especially the guns. A lot of people don't have their serial numbers on their guns. A lot of people don't even report them as stolen or as missing. Uh, yeah, what we do sometimes is take pictures and we wouldn't even buy it, and then we'd show it to uh, who we thought was a victim, and they'd yeah. say, "Yeah, that's it," and then they'd. Turn around and buy it next uh-huh. visit. Huh, interesting. So wow. little, little, all the techniques were uh, implemented. At, you, as you grow, you yeah, learn. Yeah, you're and learning as you went. You learn as you went. It had never been, sure. it never been done before. No, it no. There, this was a fascinating adventure for a year, and I was happy to be behind the scenes a little bit and be yeah. part of that and be part of the beginning of it. You remember the budget on that? Well, we got LECC money, yeah. government money. Uh, that was set up by the police department, Major Harlow and, and his crew okay. brought that money in, and ATF put in a, a, some buy money. And the combination, we had right around four or $500,000 of a budget to cover that, and it okay. worked out pretty good, hmm. pretty good. What did you pay for a stolen car, do you remember? I know it's a long time ago. But. Well, it, it depends on the—I mean, we, we had— we went from Volkswagens to Cadillacs, yeah. and we had a car bed in between. Yeah, really. <laughs> so you pay the price, what they, what they ask, then you barter. Yeah. Because I got to sell it to you. Yeah. They don't want it. Yeah. They want it's in there. They they don't want it. They want their money. Yeah. You know they're greedy. So we we barter it down, but uh, pay a dime on a dollar, twenty five cents okay. on a dollar max. Yeah. And for guns, maybe a little higher because we wanted to get them explosives. Yeah. Want to get that off the street, wow. obviously. Like people steal dynamite from construction outfits or something and bring those that bring that yeah, in? Yeah, yeah. construction outfits, uh, storage locations. Huh. We have a lot of that in the Kansas City, St. Louis, Missouri, all throughout Missouri area. Yeah. I covered a lot of that as a federal agent in my career. Yeah, that uh, the, the story I did on uh, Carl Sparrow, Tried to make a bomb to kill Tuffy De Luna for his brother Joe Spiro, a guy named Jerry Arison. He he ended up with uh, talking to A.T. Uh, Pete Lobdell, and it was in my movie uh, when he had gone to another guy some out uh, somewhere in the rural part of the state and bought a case of dynamite and then brought it up here to Kansas City, and then it gets in with the mob, and then they make bombs out of it. So that's, yeah, actually they, they bought that dynamite I think in Arkansas. Oh, it wasn't. Or, you're right. And I, brought it across state line, yeah. which added to the element of. Uh, Frustration for the bad guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Interstate commerce is, you know, part of our uh, 
forte yeah. in terms of making cases. And I believe that guy that stole it down there, uh, he was just a good old boy from down in northwest Arkansas. Usually is. <laughs> Usually is, yeah. A good old boy. <laughs> making a few bucks. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. There was something else I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, say just a little bit. He, he mentioned Major Harlow. There's a man named Sid Harlow. Major, he was a major, and Sid Harlow always ran all the the big time operations. He was the guy, and and he had kind of a crew of of guys. He had a couple of of people that were real mechanical, electronically mechanical, and and mechanical in other ways. He he had like a couple of good really investigators like Clark Hamilton, and and uh, oh, I can't think of some of the other names now. Clark was in my my other movie, but uh, he had several guys. Guys like uh, Roger Gibson and, and great in surveillance, and so he had this crew that he always brought with him whenever he'd do one of these operations like yeah, this. That's true. He 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 would go out and get these guys from wherever they were working, bring them in, and then they'd be part of that operation. Because then it, it lasted even after you took it down. When uh, Sal Manzo, I think, figured it out, didn't he? Do you remember how that? Yeah, in terms of the the, uh, the organized crime thing, what happened was when they figured that out. Uh, we got concerned about John Keating's safety. And D.R. Nichols pulled him out thinking they might think he's an informant rather than a federal agent and whack him, take him out, and they hit. And uh, so that broke that operation. But the other things carried on. You had the street figures. Oh, never fences. You had the mobsters and the uh, bank robbers, and then you had the the mobsters above all that. and. You know, you had these tiers that we all wanted to. They all wanted to make yeah. as best they could. And, you know, somebody uh, easy pickings on some of it compared to yeah. some of the others takes some work. Mm-hmm. So after the mob learned about it, and Sal Manzo turned a cold shoulder, and the way I understand it, that when Keating would go into the trap, uh, I think Al Murray was gone. I think he'd like got yeah. a, they'd dra- taken him out of the mix by then. That's, that's true. And Keating was still going in the trap by himself, and uh, all of a sudden everybody gave him the cold so- shoulder. That's cr- yeah, we could tell firsthand. Some something's wrong here. They made us. <laughs> yeah, they made our operation, and Dr. pulled him out. Smart yeah. thinking. Yeah, really. But the the street people just kept coming in. The word well, did not come out from the mob, which says something about the communication between the higher level mobsters and your your kind of lower level professional thieves out there. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, they let them they let them operate. Yeah, you know they they weren't that concerned. Unless there was a lot of money and, and usually a lower-level thief that yeah. didn't make that much right. in terms of his sales, cheap so, cars, and whatever. So the mob guys didn't even talk to him. They'd say, hey, you know, that, you yeah, know, that word didn't get out, so you could keep it going for a while. That's true. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, you know, that, that underworld, it's, it's, it's fascinating because you don't know exactly how all that works and how they work together between those different tiers. Good word. That's a good word, Dave. The different tiers of thieves yeah. out there. There's a people just happenstance steal something and then maybe want to bring it in to you and sell it. There's people that are drug addicts and they're just constantly out trying to steal anything that's not nailed down. That's true. And then you got people that really it's like a business going out, like Al Murray and boosting uh, professionally. You know, even travel around the Midwest and boosting professionally. And, and so those are the more the guys that the mob will work with a little bit. Then you got the mob guys who, you know, will take down the bigger scores and got a guy like Sal Manzo that will then, uh, you know, kind of orchestrate that, maybe set it up. And then you guys hooked up with Sal Manzo. 
Yeah, yeah, John did a good job with that. And you know, interesting thing you bring up about uh, uh, Mira being a uh, booster for Ti Tiger Cartarella. Tiger also had two other guys, and I got another chapter on in this book called the Trenchcoat Robbers. Oh yeah, yeah. And they're the most prolific bank robbers in the history of the United yeah. States, and they both lived in North Kansas City. Yeah, very unique. <laughs> and what I tried to do in this book was to show the true life of, of the underworld in, throughout Missouri, and that it was underplayed by East Coast uh, media. Uh, it, it's like if you weren't a gangster in Detroit, New York, or Cleveland <laughs> yeah. or something, you weren't a gangster. <laughs> yeah. Well, they were just as big in Missouri as they were any place in the United yeah. States. And the other chapter I have about the machine gun, there were more machine gun hits around Missouri than there were in any other mob state that I could find yeah. in all my work and findings wow. of research. And that had to be Killer Burke. <laughs> and many others. Yeah, and many many others. others. His protégés probably, because that, that guy was a prolific killer. And he loved that machine gun. Like you said, he introduced it. First one in, in New For, York. Introduced it to New York. Yeah. And Frankie Yale, if you remember, he had been in Capone's outfit, and he had kind of retired, I believe. And he was Capone's back. mentor. He was his boss. Right. And then he tried to come in and take over when Capone got big. He tried to come into Chicago and take over some of his uh, okay. enterprise. All right. And uh, Capone says, no, it ain't going to happen. So he said, Killer Burke up and <laughs> whacked him with a machine gun. His American boys. American boys. <laughs> Pretty simple. Not Italian. Yeah. You know, that was, I, I interviewed an old guy who was kind of a, he wasn't even an associate either, but he grew up with over in the North End, what we call the Little Italy. And, and he was talking about when he was a kid and he said, uh, he, he said, we always called people who weren't Italians or weren't black the Americans. You guys were always Americans, you know, the Americans this and Americans that. So a kind of an old school term there, yeah. Americans. That's true. Uh, yeah. Which if you think about it, I mean, these people were, you know, maybe not fresh off the boat, but their parents certainly came over on the boat. And many of them in the 30s and 40s came over on the boat. So they were brand new immigrants. And, and so they weren't Americans yet. They, yeah. you know, they were just being assimilated at that time. Yeah, he brought them, like Capone, as an example, he brings them in because of their talent. Yeah. You know, Killer Burke, Winkler, and all those uh, Egan's Rats had a reputation of successful hits, operations, thefts, the snatch racket, they set that up, uh, and, and so forth and so on. And then Capone saw that, and he said, these guys could do some special things for me. Yeah, that's another thing is kidnapping back in those days. You so called it the snatch racket, and that was a big deal back in the 30s. Yeah, and uh, actually Killer Burke started all that. He mm -hmm. was the inventor of the snatch racket up in Detroit. Wow. All right, Dave. I, well, this has been great. Folks, you need to get this book. Uh, I enjoyed talking. This, I, this is good. I like doing it. I could do more of this. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could go into some of these other stories uh, in, in more detail. There's a lot more of them in there. And this is Gangsters, Outlaws, and Mobsters. And look for the link in my show notes and, and snag this book. So uh, I appreciate you coming in, Dave. Yeah, they'll have my phone number in there, and I'm very approachable. Oh, there you I go. I live in, in the area here, and uh, I've enjoyed. I got my own books to sell. Yeah, you can my go buy. My publisher selling a lot. He'll meet up with you and, and give you an autographed copy like mine. For sure, I sign a wall. <laughs> you sign one like that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dave. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Okay.
Well, folks, that ends a, another Gangland Wire episode. I uh, really appreciate you tuning in and listening, however you listen to it, whether it's on the website or on one of the apps. I, I also want to express my thanks and sincere appreciation for the kind reviews that you've given me uh, on the app or the Apple app or, or some of the other podcast apps. I don't check them. I used to check them when I first did this. I checked them a lot, but I don't check them anymore so much. Once in a while, I look at them. Uh, sometimes I get, you know, sometimes I get my feelings hurt, especially on YouTube, but that's okay. Uh, if you put yourself out there, you, you better not have a thin skin. I've learned that. Uh, you know, my most recent documentary, I really want to express uh, uh, extra appreciation to the people who stepped up and helped me finance that movie and, and able to increase the production values, uh, hired a professional to do the reenactment scenes and some of the other things and got some better music I had to pay for. And we have it out now. Now, the last time I did one of these endings for the uh, uh, podcast, I, I had a different title. I changed the title just at the last minute. It's now about theft, burglary, murder, and cover up. So I encourage you to come on the website. I can't get it on Amazon like I have Brothers Against Brothers and Gangland Wire because they changed their rules. And if I can't get a theatrical release like a major film studio or get it in a major film festival, which is kind of like, uh, um, uh, I don't know what it's like. It's, it's, it's dang near impossible unless you're politically connected to some of the people that run these film festivals. And a guy like me uh, doesn't really have a chance. It's been my experience. I fought that a few years back and, and I gave up. It's, it's too much effort for uh, too little payoff. Uh, but if you want to stream it, it's on my website for $1.99. I figured out a way to do that. And uh, you, you, you pay me $1.99 and I will send you a link to stream it. As well as my other two movies, you want to stream them for $1.99. Of course, I have the DVDs for sale. Or if you make a donation, why uh, I'll give you the DVD and give you a streaming uh, link too. Or a book or Kindle book, whatever you want. Yeah, you guys kind of know the drill by now if you've been listening to it. If not, just go to my donate page. I uh, uh, One last thing, I've kind of uh, dogged off on this PTSD thing. I used to always uh, uh, want to try to promote that. So uh, if you've been listening to podcasts, you know what to do. But uh, if you have any problems with PTSD and you know and you're a veteran, then you know go to the VA. If not, go to the VA website. Or just Google VA hospital PTSD, and they've got a hotline, and they've got a lot of resources. And even if you're not a veteran, or if you just know a veteran, you can you can go there and find the resources. If you're not a veteran, you can go there and find resources. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.